0: Thank you thank you that was so much more of an introduction than i realized i even had so but it is a gift to be back with you all tonight i'm going to take my mask off and keep my distance because this was not made with um, for a moving face um but yes i'm boosted and all good things but it is a gift to be here tonight um i didn't even write down how i wanted to introduce myself so i don't think i have anything to add except i've been in kansas city three and a half years now and it is very much home i miss memphis but This is where my heart is now. So it's good to be with you. Um, And one thing I did want to say about proclaiming pride, that interfaith or ecumenical pride service that I've been involved with, we are doing, conflicting with y'all's event next Sunday night, but we're doing a solstice activity um, over at All All Souls UU from 5 to 6.30. It's kind of come and go with the group thing at 5.45. um, But wanted to offer a way to practice queer spirituality that was distinctly outside of the Christian tradition. Um, So we're going to be doing some... Rituals Influenced by Pagan Spirituality, for which I'm really excited. So please see me afterwards if you are interested in that. Um, And if you're curious about anything, I have handouts at the table with my email on them. And I do check my email better than I check even my Instagram direct messages. So please feel free to reach out to me. Um, But tonight, as part of the Liberation Theology series that y'all have been a part of, I want to talk to y'all a little bit about fancy big word called utopia and what some queer people are saying about this both queer theorists outside of religion and spirituality um, and what some of us within the church and within spirituality are saying so to get started I'm curious when I say the word utopia what comes to mind what words what images what stories um, feel free to shout it out I don't need no hands or anything paradise, paradise. Perfect. say that again perfect, perfect. perfection Early American history, mm. some layers there. Exactly what you
1: thought it would
0: be. Exactly what you thought it would be. Ooh, I like that one. Gardens. Gardens. You know, in my utopia, there'd be a lot of plants and gardens. So yes. Well, for a long time, whenever I thought about the word utopia, I thought of a short story called "The Ones Who Walked Away from Omalus" by Ursula. Kayla Gwen, Excuse my misspelling of her name. Um, she's a sci-fi author. She wrote this story in the 70s. It's like a little four-page story. I'm not going to read it all, but I dare you to go find it, because it wrecked me a little, and it may wreck you. Um, and I read it a few years, or like 10 years ago, and I think about it all the time. Um, it's a short story that's about this perfect utopian city named Omelas, or I think that's how, that's how I'll say it tonight. Um, and it's this perfect city that's literally perfect from the ground up. Everyone has Everything that they need, um, not just to like, be fed and be comfortable or even be happy, but she goes on about how all the citizens have everything they need to have purpose and joy. It is a true utopia in the purest of sense, from the downtown of the city all the way to the farmlands outside. Every single citizen knows true joy and true purpose. But like most stories of utopias, there's a catch. And the catch in this story is, I'm going to spoil it for you, so please excuse me. Um, During adolescence, every citizen from Omelas has to go um, downtown, make a journey to the center of downtown, to this big old building, and they go to the basement of it, and they're shown a door that's locked up. And they open the door to see a human being that's been locked in that room 24-7, 365, from birth until death. So the perfection of this entire city rests on this single individual suffering from beginning to end. She goes on and talks about like maybe they're not really an individual because they've been in this room since they like were alive so they don't have any thoughts or desires they don't have any purpose to be fulfilled. But it's still kind of struggling. So there's a catch to this utopia, or maybe it's not a catch because maybe they're not struggling. But the story ends by talking about how there are many of those in Omelas who, upon learning about the catch this, after this rite of passage, either right after or maybe years and years down the road, they decide to leave. And they decide to go, and they go do something else. And one of the last lines in the story says, They go on, they leave Omelas, they walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. So this story is a fabulous story that I've always thought about when I thought about utopia, but a few years ago, a couple years ago, I read another book that really changed what I think about when I think about that word, and it makes me think that utopia might actually be a real place, but it's not that city, Omelas, it's more of the location, the unknown, into which those who walk away from Omelas walk. That's kind of what I want to talk about tonight, and I know it may seem kind of weird to talk about utopia when we're talking about liberation theology, because we know things aren't going to be perfect tomorrow. But I think utopia is loaded into any conversation we have about liberation and freedom and oppression. Because at the core, we're all asking, is is there ever going to be a day in which we no longer need liberation? And that is often what people think about when they think about utopia. So tonight, I'm hopeful that this little presentation, I'm going to speak for 20-ish minutes and then give us 15, 20, depending on how long I go, um, to reflect and engage through a few different manners and discussion, reflection on your own. I like to Take it Montessori style when I lead and teach. I work with youth, so I have to let them kind of take their own lead a lot of times. But I do think this category, or how I'm going to define utopia tonight, is going to be really helpful for thinking about liberation. It's exactly what came to mind as soon as I found out I was tasked with talking about orthopraxy versus orthodoxy, which Two big words that you don't need to know, especially if you never want to go to seminary or anything, but orthopraxy is a fancy word for right action, right practice, and orthodoxy is like right thinking or right belief. Um, And so tonight, I'm not going to use those words too much, but I'm going to show you how we can talk about liberation theology and utopia in a way that concerns more with what we do and how we practice it versus what we think or what we believe but I have not been here the past few times that y'all have been talking about liberation theology. That's not true. I was here for one of them, but I snuck in late and missed most of the speaker because I'd just come back from out of town. But I'm curious. What are a few highlights of y'all's conversations over the past few weeks about liberation theology? Just to give me some context before I dive in. Institutional
1: sin.
0: Institutional sin, yes.
1: That it should be about like, the poor, the disenfranchised, leading the way and defining
0: the, the way. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I think that was the one I was here for. Any other insights that y'all have gleaned? The power of the
1: people.
0: The power of the people, amen. The need for confession. The need for confession. This makes me feel Christian when I think about that, yes. Cool. Well, I'm excited to add to the conversation tonight because I think that this whole category of utopia can really help us dream about the future in powerful ways. So. I'm kind of a wannabe academic. Tonight, one of my big passions is taking the academic conversations that we have within seminaries and grad schools and making it accessible to people who don't want to go spend thousands of dollars and years of their lives to have those conversations. Um, This author, this thinker, I think is one of the most important that I've read that I think needs to get out of academia. Um, And his definition of utopia is going to kind of be um, the guiding principle for tonight. So Jose Munoz um, was a performance scholar and queer theorist, I think mainly who worked out of NYU. He passed away in 2013. Performance studies is this new discipline within academia that none of y'all really need to know much about. It's kind of like philosophy meets art criticism. Um, So it's people talking about performances, be it conventional art, or events that we can call performances philosophically and kind of thinking about them. So it's new, it's cool, I'm fascinated by it, but don't remember that word if it's not helpful for you. Um, But he wrote a book called Cruising Utopia, The Then and There of Queer Futurity. Um, That is the book that changed how I think about utopia. So a lot of what I quote and pull from tonight is gonna be from that text. And if any of you are philosophy heads in the room, he is largely inspired by a guy named Ernst Bloch, a German Marxist philosopher um, who talked a lot about concrete utopias. So there's some homework if you're curious. Um, But before we unpack his definition of utopia, I want to start where he starts in the book, by looking at a piece of art. He's a performance scholar, so he starts with art, pieces of performance. And that's what we're going to do tonight. So this picture, it's on your handout. Um, It's up here on the screen as well. It's nothing too fancy, um, but it's actually one of Andy Warhol's still life. So you may recognize one of the objects is something from Warhol's imagery, um, but this is one of his lesser known drawings from a collection in the 50s. But I wonder, what do you see when you see this picture? What do you notice? What do you think? What do you see? Flower and Coke bottle. A flower and a Coke bottle. What else do you notice or what re- reaction do you get from this simple little drawing? This like
1: human nature dichotomy.
0: Yeah. There's Some dichotomy in there, something human about it. Coke
1: couldn't sustain life like
0: that. Coke yeah. couldn't sustain life like that. Yeah, what is she doing? She don't she don't grow roses. Like <laughs> capitalism versus what the earth just gives us freely. Yes, and it, did you read my handout, like ahead, of, or did you read my notes ahead of time? Yeah. <laughs> she just. Honestly, the first thing that came to mind when I saw this drawing was a practice I had in grad school. We had a rose bush in front of one of my houses. So whenever we had people over for parties or dinner or this or that, we took our Topo Chico bottles that we had dozens of in recycling and put a little rose and sent them home with it. So when I opened this book and saw this, I was like, hey, that's familiar. Um, But yes, y'all actually nailed it. like maybe y'all did read this book in advance but um what like Muno starts off his book cruising utopia with this warhol image and he talks a lot about warhol throughout this book so if you're curious about warhol um he has some cool things to say. But he points out that there is a juxtaposition of two things here that we may believe don't belong together, a delicate life form that is a rose, which often represents perfection and beauty, and all of these elevated ideals, and an empty Coke bottle, a literal literal piece of trash. And in the 50s, we weren't as familiar with the art we are now, which often recycles a lot of trash imagery. And Warhol has been a big part of that. Um, So in the 50s, this was kind of like There was less precedence for it. Um, But Munoz describes how there is a subversion going on in this image with the Coke bottle. The Coke bottle that's supposed to represent production, consumption, capitalist waste, um, is transformed into something new by its juxtaposition with this rose. He says that the Coke bottle um, is the everyday material that is represented in a different frame. It lays bare the potentiality that it represents, or this image lays bare the potentiality um, and so munos is really curious about that that word potentiality you're going to hear me say that a lot tonight that in this juxtaposition this creative intersection warhol opens up a potential for a new meaning out of this object that's just supposed to represent waste consumption nothing beautiful but just the sugar that rots your teeth and that's why i can't drink coke anymore and Warhol, like, or, sorry, Munoz talks about how these, these moments of potentiality are moments that become utopic because they show us another way of understanding the world. And these moments that are utopic, that, that manifest utopia, aren't these grand moments of and superb emotion where everything suddenly makes sense and we feel all the feelings, but rather they're everyday moments in which suddenly we see some new potentiality that we hadn't seen before. Ninos presents this image of um, Andy Warhol's still life with a poem by the poet Frank O'Hara called Having a Coke With You. Um, So I don't know as many poems or like poets. I think Frank O'Hara is pretty popular, but this is only one of the ones I know from him. But it's a beautiful poem in which he goes on about a moment within queer romance two people in love who aren't expected to be in love, finding a moment of affection in a world that doesn't make space for them. Um, and it starts off by saying, having a Coke with you is even more fun than going to San Sebastian, Irun, Hendaya, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach at the Traversa de Grazia in Barcelona. Partly because of your, in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier St. Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you, partly because of your love for yogurt, partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches, partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people and statuary. So the poem continues this isn't the full poem but just elaborating on this magic moment that having a coke with someone you love can be that it's better than all of the grand vacations the paradises in this world because it is effervescent it is real it is true for a moment and at the end he talks about some other moments of beauty that probably escaped history and he's like this is why i'm telling you so that we can remember this moment and so Munoz you know, looks at this and calls this moment, these moments within like queer life, queer romance, moments of queer relational bliss. And he talks about how these moments are moments in which suddenly the, the oppressive system of the world that queer people are suppressed by, repressed by, that we can't live into our true love. These moments in which we can live into our love, even if they're not seen, even if they're not remembered beyond the people who experience them. There's a moment of bliss, a moment of utopia within those moments. They don't change the system outside all the time, but that nevertheless makes them real. And that's When I first read this, I immediately thought of so many moments from my own life as a queer person. I'm sure plenty of people in the room can agree, but these moments in which suddenly things feel real when we were told they were not supposed to, that we know that they are real even though we can't share them with people we know and love but these moments are nevertheless real and meaningful and important and he says help us navigate what utopia is and so queer moments of queer relational bliss reveal that there is utopia in the everyday because they give us the ability to rewrite a larger map of everyday life so this moment of sharing a coke with someone you love was more than just a coke it showed the potentials of what the world could be should everyone be free to share a coke with the people that they love so the rest of his book finds moments like this and art forms and moments in artists' lives and all sorts of things, performances, both strictly and non-conventionally performances. Um, it talks about how queer people embody this utopia by doing something that they were told that's not supposed to be done and not fixing the world, but seeing that the world could be different. Um, And as I read this book, I was shook because it was one of the most theological texts I had ever read, even though it makes no mention of theology or spirituality. And there's a lot in it that would be super offensive at a lot of churches. So this is not a book for kids to go home and read. It's an academic text that I think everyone needs to know the meaning of. but yeah, I think there are a lot of connections between Utopia and the Kingdom of God, and I'm not the only person who did that, or who thinks this. A few months after finding this book, I found another text called Sexual Disorientations. It's a bunch of academic essays of New Testament scholars unpacking what he has to say about Utopia, which was really affirming. And a few months ago, I met a PhD student who's actually talking about how this version of Utopia is like undergirding what Paul talked about when he talked about the church in the New Testament. So there's more work to be done around here. But for the next 10, 15 minutes, I'm going to kind of walk through a definition of utopia. I've kind of set it up now, but I'm going to like give it to you a little more cohesively. But before we move on, I want wonder, are there any questions or insights or reflections people would like to offer or ask? Feel free to ask some afterwards if there are some. So let's define what this utopia is other than these fragmentary moments so let's give I want to offer a little more um, like yeah cohesive of a definition so that we can think about how this sense of utopia can transform how we go about our lives because I think it's offered me a lot of hope and centering and guidance and how I think about my own life both in my spiritual practices my practices of justice and liberation simply how I live my everyday life and I think can be true for the rest of us. And my hope is that you get a nugget that may not transform the whole world for you immediately, but at some point down the road, you're like, oh, utopia is happening to me right now. So, in order to find utopia, we need to set up the stage of what the world is right now. And that's what Muno starts off with talking, or starts off in his book. He talks about how the world contains what he calls. Totalizing forces which is a fancy word you don like it 's not that category it 's not that academic of a term that 's used too much, but he uses it throughout this book to talk about the systems and structures of oppression from which we need liberation. We are here talking about liberation theology because we know what people need to be liberated from racism, sexism, homophobia, heteronormativity, classism, all the isms that make for marginalization these muno 's calls are totalizing forces because they tell us that this is just how things are. They try to totalize what your reality is by saying this is what it is. Um, And he talks about how these different forms of oppression suppress narratives that show us what things could be like, what things could look like, and reinforce narratives that keep us thinking this is just how it is. So the two isms, the two totalizing forces that he tackles on headmo- or foremost are capitalism and heteronormativity, which I'm a queer who loves talking about capitalism and heteronormativity and dismantling them, so I love it. Think I'm not alone in this room. Um, but first he talks about how capitalism operates by having us think that it is a natural order, an inevitability the way things would be. He says capitalism is a system, as an I- ideology in our world. As an ever expanding and exhausting force field of how things are and will be when we think about it i 'm sure i 'm not an economist, so i can 't give all the examples, but we 've seen this in the world that capitalism kind of keeps us from thinking of other ways of sharing. Like our, our belongings, what we own, that we, ha- we think in terms of profit and product instead of relationship first. Cause capitalism is kind of function to keep us from thinking outside of the box. And it tells us that this is how it is and we're just doing the best with what we can. There's only so much to go around in this system. It may not be perfect, but it's the best system for dealing with what we have. So he talks about capitalism, and he also talks about heteronormativity. And he spends a lot of time talking about how those two things are interwoven, which can be a conversation for us later. But it's in his conversation about heteronormativity, the the urge, the system, the, the story at work in our world, that, It's normal to be in a hetero relationship that's owning a home and producing children. And so heteronormativity even functions, I think, in my church. It likes and welcomes LGBTQ people, but it's still pretty heteronormative. So these systems of heteronormativity, be them very oppressive to queer people, or more accepting but not transformative for queer people. In this conversation, he creates my favorite term in the book, and that's the chokehold of straight time. Um, So one thing I'm not going to get into, he talks a lot about time and temporality, which is a fascinating conversation. Um, But this is, I think, the most important part, that this timeline that's kind of imposed on us in our world, that, that the heteronormativity, that the expectation is, for a man and woman to get married and have babies and own home and do the capitalist journey, that this timeline, um, even when it's not like forced upon people, is still like a chokehold um, that it keeps people from seeing other ways of living their lives and being, or it creates work for us to find ourselves outside of that timeline. And he says that this timeline or this straight time makes queer people think that both the past and the future do not belong to them, all we are allowed is to imagine or all, all we are allowed to imagine is barely surviving the present so a lot of this book a lot of this idea of utopia is really helping us escape the here and now the chokehold of the present That this is how things are and this is how they're always going to be but he, he works to enable us to dream better futures so he talks a lot about how there are these totalizing forces in the world these structures and systems that tell us that this is just how things are and like we just have to do the best with what we have but that is not the whole f- picture. As we all know, I think, the world is not finished. It is an open system. It's an inherently not done, it's in process. If any of you are familiar with process theology, process thought, it's another way of thinking that fundamentally understands the world as in change. When we look at the basic building block of all matter, it's moving, it's movement, that things aren't static, that the only reality is change, unlike process theologians say God is change itself. Which I think is kind of groovy um but we know that the world is not done That the world is not in there's not a sentence at the end of the world yet and it's precisely at the intersection of these totalizing forces that want to tell us that the story is over that this present moment is all we have and the future is just the present but part two so the intersection of these totalizing forces and the fundamental openness of the world at which utopia emerges and so utopia then is not this perfect place that we reach and we never leave. It's not that city of Omelas in which we just go along forever, never worrying, never struggling, never working towards something in the future. Rather, utopia is, or, or, utopia is found in fleeting and fragmentary moments of insight and potentiality. That's what he was getting at with showing us those pieces of art that we started out with, the poem and the uh, Warhol Coke bottle. He shows us that there are these moments in which suddenly we see things differently. That Coke bottle that was representing capitalist waste suddenly becomes this vessel for beauty and something transcendent he says throughout our lives there are moments that help us see suddenly that things can be different than what we've told and those moments are utopic moments not because they solve everything but because they give us the courage to move forward with a different way of being in the world and so a Couple, or One of the things that he emphasizes about this idea of the utopia then, like I kind of said at starting out, it's not always these grand moments where everything suddenly makes sense. Rather, there are everyday moments in which we get a glimpse of something different. So moments of utopia, when we saw that Coke bottle, we weren't suddenly like, this is how I fixed capitalism. Rather, we got a glimpse of, oh, what could the world be post-capitalism? The same way these moments of utopia don't save us, but they're everyday moments that show us the the glimmer with the potentiality for something to be different. Um, And yeah, so he talks about how the utopia itself is not this place or just these moments even, but rather it's an impulse that we see in everyday life. And like living in the realm of utopia is living in the realm of educated hope. It's not knowing all of the answers, it's not fixing all of the issues, but it's training ourselves, educating ourselves to see moments in which we can see things differently so that we aren't locked into the here and now but can create a new world together. So obviously, he is he emphasizes that queer people have experienced these moments throughout our lives, throughout history. Just again, like when, whenever queer love or queer affection or queer desire has found a moment to manifest, it is one of these utopic moments because it isn't supposed to exist according to the totalizing forces, but it still does. And those who experience it suddenly see that the world doesn't have to be like they were told it was supposed to be. So he opens up with the long quote. This is like how the book opens up. And I tried and tried to like make this my own words or something else, and I just thought he said it better. So I'm gonna offer this. This is kind of how he connects queerness with utopia. And he says, queerness is not yet here. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. Queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The here and now is a prison house. We must strive in the face of the here and now's totalizing rendering of reality to think and feel a then and a there. We must dream and enact new and better pleasures, other ways of being in the world, and ultimately new worlds. Queerness is that thing that lets us feel that this world is not enough, that indeed something is missing. And queerness or utopia is an insistence on potentiality or concrete potentiality of another world. So obviously when he talks about queerness and this thing of utopia, this thing that's not yet here that we may feel but we don't actually touch, he's talking about more than just the identity politics that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender folk. Operate under, but rather as a deeper ethos that's found within the queer community, but is more expansive than simple matter or just the matters of sexuality and gender. So MUNOS comes from a lot of, or a long line of queer theorists, queer thinkers, queer activists who are really like kind of upset with the way in which queer politics. We got reduced to just fighting for same-sex marriage because that made it this private capitalist endeavor and took it away from the thing that could really transform the world. So he, other queer thinkers, myself included, really believe that queerness can transform the entire world. And so we're talking about liberation theology. That's, we know that's what liberation is. Liberation isn't liberation unless it's liberation for all people. And that's what he seeks to do by rescuing this understanding of queerness as something that's not yet here, but rather it's a response to the past and this daring to imagine a new future but because queerness is always in response to the past and what we've been told it's never quite done it's not something we inhabit it's not something we like succeed but it's something that we're constantly figuring out and working out and seeking to embody in new ways And so his point, though, is that queerness is more than just this identity, but it is this transformative thing that can transform the world for everyone. And that is what utopia is. It's about being transformed. It's about experiencing these moments that change the way we look at ourselves, the people around us, and the systems of the world we live in. He says that moments of utopia call us to think about our lives and times differently, to look beyond a narrow version of the here and now he says utopia is about an insistence on something else, something better, something dawning. So as queer people know, we're still figuring out what it means to live fully into our queerness. That's the look at the world the past 20 years and how the conversations changed and evolved. The same way utopia is not about this place that we step into and we never leave, but it's about this ongoing insistence on something new, something better, something that we can see on the horizon, but that is not yet here, something dawning. And so this is something that queer people have known, we've experienced it, and we've embodied it through our lives. But it's more than just something that LGBTQ people experience. These moments of utopia are for us all. And they're, in my definition, I guess, any moment that makes us realize that things can be done differently. So when I was reading this book, um, it was in the pandemic, it was sometime in 2020, all I could think of about was the shutdown and how the shutdowns at the spring 2020 felt like one of these utopic moments not because the suffering and the death and the disease were not there and didn't matter but rather seeing everybody react to this tragedy and suddenly change how they were living their lives all of those conversations about how the earth is healing and the pollution was down and the dolphins were swimming through venice or like all of these moments in which we saw things differently showed us that the world didn't need to go on the way it had been. I'm sure many of us in this room have been having conversations all 2021. People at my church, all of my friends are like, why are we going back to the way things were when we got a glimpse of what the world could be like? I like, we like, it would have been foolish to say like, oh, well this shutdown's gonna fix everything and immediately we're gonna live in a whole new world. But I think a lot of us got a glimpse of what the world could be like through that. Other moments of utopia come in everyday communities like this. I think the open table really embodies utopia in a lot of ways, but any moments of solidarity and mutual aid that speak to the systems of capitalism in our world that say you have to earn your worth, that you are only worth what you produce, any sharing of money, of funds, of goods, of food, of anything that kind of go against that themselves are moments of utopia. I think those are a big one and a small one, but there are so many things in between. I wonder, can y'all think of any moments of utopia that you've experienced? Has anything popped into your head using this definition? Moments that gave you a glimpse of what the world could look like, or moments in which you embodied an alternative world up and against these totalizing forces of reality?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this like resistance is saying, like, oh, I need to buy a house, a starter house, and then a bigger house, and then a bigger house, so my wife and six kids can live there, but rather, like, this is what I need, and this is how I want to live. It shows that the world can be done differently.
1: I mean, I I would say for me personally, it would be, uh, I guess, becoming politicized and and realizing that, like, oh, I can, like, put my body in places to to fight for the things Mm -hmm. uh, that I think should be done. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, I mean, I wasn't able to make it to the city council thing, but even just like the universal uh, right to council for tenants, mm-hmm. like that's something where I think prior to, to waking up to these organizing kind of principles, I've been like, well, how in the world do you do it? But then I find myself in these communities, mm-hmm. and that that feels like utopic uh, utopic moment when we're all working collectively to uh, to bring about justice.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just certain people who need to be doing that fight, but everyone.
1: Yeah. And sometimes when you're on the right not the right side, but when you're on the, the plus side of capitalism and you're the one with the car, mm-hmm. there's such a sense of accomplishment to go and pick up people that otherwise would not be able to attend this training or mm-hmm. this walk or this feet. but to be a conduit to have to bring everyone together so that it's
0: Instead of that narrative that you're on your own, and you have to like pay your way to hell, breaking that. Yeah, there are so many moments. And like what I hope we all do, what I've been doing since I read this book, is I've been training myself to notice them more and more. So I want to finish with two more like, characteristics of Utopia. And then I'm going to give us 10 or 15 minutes to kind of reflect on this on our own. But first, I want to emphasize that Utopia embraces the unknown. Again, it is more like walking into the darkness than building a perfect city. Um... Utopia takes this willingness to say that I don't know exactly what things will look like or how exactly things will be, but they don't have to be this way. So I remember my own like coming out experience was just like that. I was like, I don't know what I'm getting into because all these Southern Baptists I'm friends with don't have no space for this, but I know that there's something there. And the past years, I've slowly built out. and I still don't know where I'm going most of the time, but it's, it's about embracing the unknown. It's about insisting on something else, not necessarily knowing what that is, which can be daunting these totalizing forces tell us that this embrace of the unknown is naive i think that's one thing capitalism's done a good job of doing Yes, we don't know the end it's not worth doing Um, but this is this utopia is about embracing the unknown and stepping into the darkness um says that hope comes from utopia because it is a out of the critical investment in utopia which is nothing like naive but instead it's profoundly resistant to the stultifying temporal logic of a broken down present. We don't know what the future is. The future is open, the future is a question mark, and embracing that feels weak, it feels naive, but it's actually strength. And thus, utopia is about experimenting. It's not about getting it perfect or working from some guarantee that you will, but rather it's about saying how could things be differently and what steps might we take in order to tinker or try to get us there. As I was thinking about this in preparation for tonight, I remembered a Judith Butler quote that I came across recently. She is um, a gender theorist that has written a lot of books and is kind of important. Um, But wrote a book about nonviolence, I think, in 2019, 2020, something like that, that I have not read, but I read a delicious interview about it. Um, And she's talking about how nonviolence is this ideology that we're never going to actually like it's not about fully embodying it, but it's still worth holding up. Um, And she talks about there's this ethical obligation to be unrealistic. And so she talks about like the conversation of electability in our country. Um, She says, if one takes a view that it is simply not realistic that a woman can be elected president, one speaks in a way that seems both practical and knowing, well, we're not there yet. As a prediction, it may be true, or it may be shifting right now, but the claim that it is not realistic confirms the idea of reality and gives it further power over our beliefs and expectations and, I think, how we act. Sometimes, or she says, if that is just the way world, the world is, even though we wish it were different, we concede to the intractability of that version of reality. Sometimes you have to imagine Sometimes you have to imagine in a radical way that puts you in an embarrassing light in order to open up a possibility that others have already closed down with their knowing realism. I find that that dismissive form of realism is guarding those borders and shutting down those horizons of possibility. She may have read this book too. Reminds me, she says, of parents who say, oh, you're gay or oh, you're trans. Well, of course I accept you and love you, but it's going to be a very hard life. Instead of saying this is a new world and we are going to build it together, and you're going to have my full support, so when I read that, whenever I read that, I it connected to this and changed the way I think about things. We don't. The world isn't going to be perfect tomorrow when we wake up, but if we start to concede to these narratives of reality that oh, we're just not there yet, oh, wouldn't it be great? Oh, they're just a product of their time. That we start to reinforce that reality and we close off possibilities that can actually transform the world around us. So the last thing that I wanna focus or bring up is that I, as I was reading this, I was convinced that what Munoz was talking about was the same thing that Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the kingdom of God. There are a lot of parallels in this utopia that's not here, but on the horizon, um, that doesn't perfect everything, this already, but not yet, and this utopia is a lot like the already, but not yet within the kingdom of God in Christian theology. One of my favorite moments in the gospels is in Luke 17, when. Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when when the kingdom of God was coming and he answered the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed nor will they say look here it is or there it is for in fact the kingdom of God is among you elsewhere other translations say that the kingdom of God is at hand. Throughout the Gospels, I think Jesus' main project was helping us see that the kingdom of God is already here, that we don't need a political ruler to bring it to us, that we don't need religion and rules to help us experience it, but it's already within. This sounds a lot like this idea of utopia to me, that there are moments in our everyday life that can transform how we live if only we get the eyes to see them. When we think about the like language of the kingdom of God anyway, like that, that itself is subverting the Roman kingdom. Y'all may know that the whole like proclamation of Jesus' lord was not some pure theological doctrinal statement but was rather a subversion of the proclamation that caesar is lord so really embedded into the jesus story is this like we see this totalizing force that is the roman kingdom and we're going to do things differently and we're going to call it the kingdom of god or maybe the utopia of god there's a lot of like scholarship, a lot of thinkers who talk about the whole purpose of church is not to perfect the world, um, like top down at least, like we're not trying to make everyone think just like us, but rather the church is supposed to be a microcosm. Faith communities are supposed to be microcosms of an alternative society of God's utopia. So the goal is not perfecting it so you can bring other people in and be like, look, we're doing it just perfectly, but looking around to these people that you do community with and saying, we're going to try. We're going to insist on something else, something new, something dawning. For me, that helps release a lot of the like, pressure I feel like I put on churches myself or that we feel for things to be perfect. Because when they're about being microcosms and practicing utopia, it's about getting those glimpses and never being there fully. And so this definition, this, this thinking, this abstract conversation we've been having for a few minutes now brings us to the question of how do we see or how do we practice utopia in our everyday As a pastor as a thinker i spend a lot of time thinking about abstract and not always doing so i want to offer the rest of our time to kind of think about how we can do this and like i was worried it's a little less than the 20 minutes i hope we're going to take about 10 minutes now to help you distill some of this abstract thoughts of what utopia is and kind of find ways for it to be present in your own life um, and in your own world and within the advent story because as i keep on forgetting it's christmas time um, so here in a minute, I will give you all a few minutes to do one or two or three or four things. First, I'm going to pop some discussion questions up on the screen. I'm going to come around and pass them out, too. Um, take a minute with people at your table or in your journal or on your own to like work through some of these questions or just reflect on what I've been talking about. Um, if that's not your mood, another thing you could do is use the pens and pa- or pencils and paper at your um, table and draw your own rose in a Coke can. Like, Draw your own image that juxtaposes two things in a moment that shows that things can be different. Or maybe just draw another moment that felt like this type of utopia for you. That creative engagement can um, be awakening for me, so I hope it can for you too. Um, Third, I'll pass out uh, something with the Magnificat on it. That's I really think Advent is all about making space for utopia. That's this morning I was reminded of a Meister Eckhart quote that said, "What what is it worth if Christ was born two thousand years in Bethlehem? If Christ is not born again in my life? That's I think the whole Christmas story is about. It's like expecting this impossible thing, and Advent and. Christian history has been about like practicing this waiting for noticing the moments in which the kingdom of, or God will incarnate themselves or utopia will manifest. So I have the Magnificat, which is Mary's little song that she sang after she found out she was gonna have Jesus and some questions with that. And the last thing I'll invite you to do is just to spend a few minutes meditating on what utopia might mean to you. So I'll pass around these papers, give us a few minutes and then Nick will give us our final announcements. Any questions as I'm coming around?
1: How would you describe queer relational
0: bliss? Well, yeah. How
1: does that, that sit with
0: you? What comes up for It's like oh, like one of the image. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. How would you describe queer relational bliss, or how does that sit with you? So that's another word that he uses throughout this book. Um, is the word ecstasy. So these moments of like queer ecstasy in which. Like you suddenly feel free from the systems that have suppressed you while knowing that those systems are still there. Um, and so like my things have changed since 2003 or four when he wrote this book. There was a lot more public queer visibility than there was even 10, 15 years ago. But these moments in which queer people experience the fullness of who they know themselves to be, this bliss, this ecstasy, while knowing that that doesn't change the reality outside of them. It may give us hope to go dismantle it in the ways that we can, but the, it shows us that the two are not mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? So it's like centering our meaning, centering our organizing our activity on the reality of those moments, and not the systems that they are suppressed by.
1: I wonder if it could also be said as like experiencing ourselves for who we are Mm -hmm. as opposed to the identities that we've been socialized to embody.
0: Yeah, so experiencing ourselves as we truly are instead of the identities that were expected or like, or that are impressed upon us by society. Yes, I think that's it. Like, I'm going to do things a different way, and I'm going to find bliss in that. And that's because there's that's something authentic in that. It's not just for queer people. Or maybe we can all be queer in our own ways.
1: So that makes me think about how I grew up also in a Um, So I didn't know much about liturgical colors, and I didn't know much about like the words and the candles for Advent, like we didn't just do that. But so I'm trying to get back in touch with some of that, but I'm thinking about how joy is today, I think, Mm -hmm. is Advent, the word is joy. And one of the ways I was trying to think about that is joy is resistance, but I'm putting that together with like this utopia, like when you have those moments Mm -hmm. where you're feeling this utopia, and that moment of
0: like having that joy is this active resistance in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I I enjoy that. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Did y'all hear that? Kind of moments of joy or moments of resistance, in this moments of utopia. And it's the third Sunday of Advent. We like pink. We'll take another five or six minutes or so, and I'll wander around in case anyone has questions or. Like, what did you mean when you said this? So, as someone who works with teenagers and loves posing questions that they love to look at me and not say anything in response to, I love these conversations going on. But to be sensitive of whatever else we may have going on tonight, and because now I'm curious, what y'all are talking about? I wonder, do y'all have any questions or insights from your conversation or reflection that you'd like to share? Ask.
1: So what that reminded me of is um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher, and all of the focus of on like being in the present moment and mm-hmm. focusing very much on the present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always kind of wrestled with that. So like I don't have everything I need in the present. Yeah. moment. But a lot of people, if they close their eyes right now, would not have everything they need. Uh huh. And so I'm curious, like, if you could comment on, on kind of that that difference.
0: I like that. Yeah. Give me two days and I'll write a paper about it because I think there's a lot there. Well, thats I guess there's like the present. So as he's talking about this, it's like the present is dictated to us by these totalizing forces. So the way in which we're told to understand the present is this moment on a timeline that's guaranteed and things are just going to continue being this way because this is how it is and this is how it always will be versus the like presence I see within a lot of mysticism and meditation stuff is like a presence that's deeper than the single present moment. So... Like, blah, 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 blah. Uh, like thinking a lot about time and what time is like the here and now that Munoz is talking about is this here and now that the future is closed like the future is just going to be this moment but a little bit different versus the like future that he dares us to dream of is one that makes us so radically present to the current moment so that we can see what's behind us see what's not here that we can see that indeed something is missing and insist on a better future um and so i think I think there's a lot of connections between meditation, mysticism, a lot of Eastern mysticism as well, and what Munoz is trying to inspire us into, that by being more present to the moment that we get out of these narratives that describe what the present is. So as soon as we're truly present to the current moment, we know that the future is open. That's process theology talks a lot about how Every moment is a sum of its past, but it's not reduced to just what's behind it. So every moment is like constituted by everything that's happened, but not just everything that's happened, but God's presence within it. If we understand God has changed itself, that means every moment has a radical opportunity to be different, that it's open, that we live in this open system. And so he's talking about a present that's not real almost that's a lie about where we sit in time and i think like practice like practicing presence practicing mindfulness helps us get to a deeper reality that this present is so much bigger than what we can name in the narratives we give it and the future is so much more open does that answer your question yeah, you, that's fabulous yes other questions or insights or dares so
1: like the present reality
0: Yes, or the present reality versus the real moment. Like if this, rea- these reality, like the butler realities. Like, oh, this is what's real. What, what is? It? I think that's what I was reading a lot of Buddhism as I was reading these books, and I never really connected the two in my thinking because I like to be scattered in my reading. But that's why I think a lot of the like when we practice mindfulness, we get underneath the narratives that just dictate what the present's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, another question. So what would you say, so uh, we've been talking a lot about, like, right practice and utopia is, like, it's always a process. It's always these, like, glimpses mm-hmm. of, of a different way. And uh, the folks who are, like, way convinced that right belief is the thing, like, what would you have to say to them and that version of utopia? Mm-hmm. Like, what would you say?
0: I guess, like, as I said to you when you whispered this question a couple minutes ago, when we believe that the world is open, that the future is not dictated, we can't have a right belief in that sense, at least. So the orthodoxy understanding that... So, one of these essays that talks about Munos and New Testament and queer temporality talks about how theology can, it, like, there's this impetus within Christian theology to have it all figured out. Like, s- systematic theology is something you go and study when you go to Christian seminary. Even my queer seminary that, like, really told us that there's nothing to believe in, but here are all the options, she'll try to teach us some systematic theology. So, there's this impetus within systematic theology to have it all figured out, to develop a system that can answer any question, even if the question is, well, you'll just figure that out in heaven. Um, and so this article that I love talks about how the task of theology must then not be a like it must not have a teleological end, it must not seek to end. Like there is no end to theology, but rather theology is about insights, and he uses the word and or they use the word insights. I forget who the author is. Um, but so I guess that's kind of what I would say to that. But the world is open. Belief in the orthodox sense can't exist because the world is always changing. And so as soon as we have a system that's figured it out, it's not, it doesn't work anymore because every moment things change. And so rather belief to me is not about these dogmas that we can like hold that are timeless and true forever, but rather the narratives we tell ourselves. And so that's, I mean, like, so to me, it's a belief that utopia is loaded into the everyday moment. That's not a thesis I can build a system around and prove exactly, but rather it's approaching how I live my life. So thinking about beliefs, not as these doctrinal things that, are airproof and bulletproof, but it will last all the time, but rather beliefs as the stories we tell ourselves so that we can think of better stories to tell ourselves. And yeah, that's, I'm really interested in decentering belief within Christianity. And I'm teaching a course at Country Club Christian Church in January called Beyond Belief, a course on what Christianity can be. So email me if you're interested. A little plug. Any other questions or insights? Maybe a was at the store. I think... Yeah. Earthseed. That's why when you said Earthseed earlier, I meant to mention that tonight. But if you've ever read Parable of the Sower, it is, in like, I read, the quote on the back of your handout is from Monica Coleman's Making a Way Out of No Way, a Postmodern Womanist Theology, in which she spends two chapters talking about the Parable of the Sower as a theological text. That was, like, my intro to theology textbook. Um, but that book's an incredible novel about dystopian America in the 2020s when everything's falling apart and there's a demagogue president who gets elected and keeps on talking about making America great again. This was written in the 90s, Um, but in the book, there's a young woman who starts a new religious movement that I think practices utopia, exactly how Munoz talks about utopia, so if you haven't read that book, please do, like now, tomorrow. Carefully. Carefully, yeah. Awesome, well, it has been, I was telling Nick, I have talked about Mm -hmm. you and utopia and queerness to friends and on dates and early in the morning drinking coffee with people and late at night over wine and it is a gift to be talking about with a bunch of people who are dedicated to practicing it um so thank you reach out to me if you ever have any more questions and may we all go insisting on something else something new and something dawning thank you so
1: much